Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Today we're tuning in to the Senate hearing on close calls in our nation's airways. It's about when planes almost crash, but not quite. And they've been the, 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 these incidents have been increasing in recent months and years. Um, so we're going to hear from uh, Jennifer Homendy, chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, as well as Tim Arrell, uh, chief operating officer at the Federal Aviation Administration's Traffic Organization. Uh, Rich Santa, the president of the National Air Traffic Controller Association, as well as uh, Captain Jason Ambrosi, president of the Airline Pilots Association, and Randy Babbitt, principal partner of Babbitt and Associates LLC. We might not hear from all of these witnesses today, but they will be available, the, the hearing will be available online after today's show. So let's tune in. I want to welcome everyone to our hearing today, addressing close calls to improve aviation safety. This may be the most important hearing we have all year, and I want to thank Chair Cantwell, Ranking Member Cruz, and Ranking Member Moran for their help in making this hearing happen. The near misses we've been seeing recently are not normal. They are a warning that our aviation system is under stress. And today, we will have an opportunity to hear from several key stakeholders about why we are experiencing so many near misses and what we need to do to increase our safety margins. We will hear from National Transportation Safety Chairwoman Jennifer Homendy, FAA Air Traffic Organization Chief Operating Officer Tim Arell, National Air Traffic Controller Association President Rich Santa, Airline Pilots Association President Jason M Captain Jason Ambrosi, and former FAA Administrator Randy Babbitt. While disagreements tend to garner more coverage than compromise, it's worth noting that I remain proud of the bipartisan FAA Reauthorization Act that we introduced together, and I remain committed to finding a path forward to passage. Since in my non-biased, purely objective opinion, the Cantwell Cruz Duckworth Moran Senate Bill is far superior to the House alternative. Of course, safety must always come first, and that is why I say this may be the most important aviation hearing we hold this year. Our nation is experiencing an aviation safety crisis. Near misses are happening way too frequently, and I refuse to be complacent in waiting to act until the next runway incursion becomes a fatal collision. A wave of retirements and buyouts drained valuable experience from the United States aviation system, and coupled with a surge in demand, created essentially a perfect storm that's eroded the system's safety margins down to dangerously thin levels. In far too many near misses, the difference between a close call and a deadly disaster has depended on a single individual taking emergency action along with some good luck. According to the New York Times, in a recent 12-month period, there were 300 accounts of near collisions involving commercial carriers. That's almost one near miss per day so far. And I think we've got some images behind us here. The darker image behind me is a still picture from a video recorded by an individual riding in the jump seat of a JetBlue Flight 206 while landing at Boston Logan Airport. It shows a hop-a-jet charter flight crossing the runway they are about to land on and reveals how JetBlue 206 came within 400 feet of the charter flight crossing from left to right in front of them while taking off from an intersecting runway. Despite Despite that, uh, Hoppe Jet Charter Flight receiving explicit instructions to line up and wait. 
Fortunately, Logan Airport had installed a surface detection equipment that notified air traffic control um, when the charter flight began its unauthorized takeoff roll. And this layer of safety was critical in empowering the controller to provide JetBlue 206 with the go-around instructions that averted disaster. Unfortunately, that very same month at Austin Bergstrom International Airport, we witnessed how the lack of critical surface detection equipment drastically increases the risk of a catastrophe. In that incident, a controller working on an overtime shift cleared FedEx 767 to land on a runway that Southwest, that is Southwest um, 737 had been cleared to take off from. It was foggy in the early hours and the controller could neither see the runway with their own eyes nor use ground radar to track the location of the 737, which was still on the runway as the large 767 descended through the clouds. Words fail to adequately describe how close 131 souls came to dying that day. The following animation demonstrates what it looks like when a 767 comes within 100 feet of a landing 737. Here it comes. These two aircraft came within 100 feet of another. And ATC did not see how close those came and it was the pilot who called for the go around and, and, and initiated his own go around and told the um, other aircraft uh, uh, that he notified the other aircraft um, uh, that, he, that they almost came in contact with one another and the air traffic controller never saw it. But the air traffic controller had also was on an overtime shift. Unfortunately, the near misses keep happening. Last month, an Alaska Airlines flight executive an Alaska Airlines flight executing a go-around in Portland, Oregon, veered into the flight path of a SkyWest flight taking off from a parallel runway. The FAA, Congress, and the aviation industry must treat these near misses as, a precur as precursor events that, left unchecked, will eventually result in a deadly catastrophe. We have many layers of safety in our aviation system. The first layer is the pilot controller readback. The second layer is all the airport designs and markings. Next is the runway safety lights that turn red when the runway is active, alerting a crossing pilot to not cross. In ideal situations, the fourth layer is a ground radar tool. And of course, the last line of defense lies with the flight crew, especially the captain and first officer. Despite multiple layers of safety, far too many near misses have come down to the last line of defense. And bottom line, a system that repeatedly forces pilots into taking emergency evasive actions to save lives is either a broken system or one that is overwhelmed by new risks. Such new risk could be the result of aggregate loss of experience that has forced the industry to confront a workforce that overall is less, is, is less experienced from pilots to controllers to technicians and other personnel. You are tuned into the Senate Aviation Subcommittee's hearing on addressing close calls to improve aviation safety. We just heard from Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat from Illinois. She's also the chairwoman of this subcommittee. And she spoke about the many issues, and we saw a demonstration right there that was quite shocking, hair-raising, about the kinds of issues that are currently being faced in the aviation industry in terms of close calls. Right. I gasped out loud while we were watching that. You heard, yes. you know, you see these two planes heading in the same direction, except one is landing and one is taking off um, on the same runway. They actually looked like they clipped wings, but uh, there's no report of that, but it was that close. They came within 100 feet of one another. 
Incredible. And, and as she mentioned, you know, 131 people were on board uh, on that one of those airplanes. So this is a high stakes, uh, you know, issue here. Um, we also heard about many of the solutions that she's putting forward. Um, you know, she's in support of the FAA Reauthorization Act, which, among other things, would, um, you know, reinforce the 1500-hour rule, uh, which is being challenged, but it what it does is requires pilots to train for 1500 hours before they can fly commercial airlines. And when that was brought in in um, 2010, commercial aviation facility fatalities decreased by 99.8 percent. Wow, so. that's a huge number. <clears throat> that's an enormous uh, leap in training hours. I bet you the, 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 the new guys were upset with, were jealous yeah. of the old guys. Yeah, I think it was up from about 150 hours, or 250 hours, that was wow. it. Wow. Yeah. You know, she talked about the different layers of safety that ensure these near misses don't occur. She talked about the controller and the pilot talking. Um, she talked about runway markings and safety lights on the runway, as well as a ground radar tool. And then the last line of defense really is the flight staff. and. Um, in some of these instances of these near misses, um, it really comes down, like she was saying, to basically uh, somebody's decision making and some luck. Yeah. Um, and, and all it takes is some bad luck um, or a bad decision for a collision. Which we know from a lot of studies and statistics out there, when someone is overtired, actually in the workplace, there have been studies on this in the workplace, when people are tired, they make decisions as though they were drunk in a way like <laughs> I don't know what the exact phrasing is there but um, it's not good and a lot of these uh, people who are being overworked in that instance the uh, the air traffic controller was on an overtime shift and she did mention that um, but a lot of these people are on overtime shifts are working too many hours and they're they've got such a huge responsibility at the same time it's a tricky situation it's enormous responsibility I mean people's lives are on the line and you know, these people are uh, oftentimes working six days a week. They're on um, overtime. They're they're doing these jobs that require enormous focus, um, and they also have this pressure from the outside. I mean, of course, their bosses are are uh, making sure that they're held accountable. But now the the the, the federal government has investigating uh, seven different incidents, and you know we have this hearing on. Uh, on this topic, and the the entire country is paying closer and closer attention to these people, as they should, as they need to be, because of these incidents. But you have this pressure mounting in those control towers, and you know, I just wonder how that plays out in the decision making there. Hmm. All right, we'll have more on the Senate hearing on close calls in our nation's airways after the break. are tuned into the Senate Aviation Subcommittee's hearing on addressing close calls to improve aviation safety. It's chaired by Senator Tammy Duckworth, who we just heard from. And this is going to address safety culture, processes, and technologies. We heard a little bit about that already, but it is addressing an uptick in near, near misses in the aviation industry, and we're looking forward to that. So let's tune in. It appears that we've been fortunate to have experienced pilot to have experienced pilots in many of these instances who prevented a close call from becoming a disaster. But continuing to count on such good fortune is neither sustainable nor responsible. I hope we'll hear more about this from our witnesses. 
But one thing we already know, now is not the time to weaken or water down the post-Koken era of safety, uh, post-Koken era safety system. Now is the time to strengthen it. This includes prioritizing one of the most vital pillars of our aviation safety system, air traffic control. Look, every air traffic controller has the privilege and pressure of working in a role that is inherently stressful, even on a good day. But that reality is no excuse for our current status quo, which forces controllers to regularly work 60-hour weeks because an estimated 99% of airports are understaffed, in addition to many airports lacking important runway safety technology. As both a pilot and a passenger, I refuse to accept a status quo that places the lives of our constituents in the hands of civil servants who are overworked and utterly exhausted. More than a decade ago, the FAA established new pilot rest and crew rest established a new pilot rest and crew less rule. This action aligned with the growing body of knowledge demonstrating that optimizing human performance requires optimizing rest and recovery. And when it comes to optimizing performance, the stakes could not be higher for ATC. FAA prioritizes the problem of fatigue controllers and Congress must invest in these critical American workers to ensure that ATC staffing levels are sufficient to end once and for all the era of forcing controllers to regularly work 60 hours per week and often without the benefit of vital safety technology and tools. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today about how we can work together to enhance safety and get our margins back to where they need to be. I now recognize Ranking Member Moran for his opening statement. Uh, Chair Duckworth, thank you very much. Thank you for convening this hearing. Thank you for your cooperation in working with me and others to see that the, this subcommittee and this full committee accomplishes its uh, task in regard to aviation. Um, the FAA manages uh, one of the world's most complex aviation systems, in fact, the most complex aviation system. It oversees more than 45,000 flights a day and almost 3 million airline passengers. Safety is so important, but it is an evolving process and we must continually reevaluate our system to make sure we have the most safe possible in, in play. We must determine how to prevent serious incidents like runway incursions and near misses, so I'm pleased to, to join you in having this hearing. We also need to ensure that these incidents are not indicative of a larger underlying issue. We know that demand for commercial aviation is expected to grow and uh, we have new entrants into our airspace. FAA is directly involved in PACs of $1.5 million, million jobs and $1.5 trillion in GDP uh, in the world's economy. Our job is to determine the pressure points on our system now so that we can be ready to meet the demands not only today but in the future. Dangerous incidents also further highlight the need for Congress to pass FAA reauthorization. I was pleased and certainly agree with you that we have uh, a bill that is worthy of uh, action by the full committee. Uh, and consideration by the United States Senate. Uh, so I am anxiously awaiting that to occur uh, and look forward to working to see that it does. Earlier, we were successful in confirming a new FAA administrator, one, in my view, one of the most important tasks that uh, we could do and certainly one of the basic roles of the United States Senate. And so I'm pleased the administration nominated and the United States Senate uh, confirmed uh, a new FAA admi administrator that we look forward to working with and have faith uh, that he will perform his tasks well. Uh, I do hope that we get out of the uh, series of reauthorizations that we've had in years past, and I look forward to a long-term reauthorization of the FAA. The FAA, in my view, is at a critical juncture. Perhaps that could be said at many times in our country's history, but we face many challenges, and the FAA is uh, front and center. We ought to do everything in our power 
to ensure the United States remains a leader in aerospace and innovation. But, with, but we, in everything that we do, we do it safely. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Senator Moran. I will now turn it over to um, Main Committee Chairwoman Cantwell for her opening remarks. Thank you, uh, Chair Duckworth, and thank you uh, to Senator Moran for this important hearing. I, I can't think of two people better prepared to lead the safety charge and aviation charge on our committee than the two of you. So thank you for doing this hearing. And I so agree with both of your comments. I think you outlined exactly why we're here this morning, that it is a, a constant task to be on top of innovation and safety and competitiveness. And I want to thank the witnesses for being here, too, because I think that they are uh, very illuminating of the challenges we faced in the past and how we met them and what we need to do today. So I thank all of them for that. Uh, the Aircraft Certification Safety and Accountability Act outlined some new ways in which we could improve safety. One of those was to basically say that we should have a trend report every year to better listen to some of the safety trends. This hearing this morning is really a reflection of that. It is about what trend we're seeing now and why we want to do more to fix it. So I want to applaud the NTSB for their leadership on this particular issue of near misses. I think that they have sounded the alarm and I think you're sounding it again today. We are tuned into a Senate hearing on close calls in our nation's airways. It's hosted by the Senate Subcommittee on Aviation Safety, Operations, and Innovation. The committee is uh, Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Essentially, it's about how there's an increase in the number of near misses at airlines, which basically means these planes getting very close together um, to the point of almost colliding. Um, in some cases, we've heard about planes being under 100, and 100 feet away from one another. Um, we started off the last segment with uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth. She was talking about um, not continuing to count on good fortune and individual decision-making um, at our nation's airways to keep people safe. Yeah, and um, just how much luck is required when a person is overworked and underslept. And she was. Uh, we also heard about the 60-hour work weeks, which is just average for a lot of the air control uh, people uh, working at the moment due to what we know is uh, people retiring, layoffs, all these problems that started and accelerated since COVID took hold. Yeah, she mentioned how 99% of airports are understaffed. Um, you know, airports lacking safety technology. So the, it sounds like these airports just do not have what they need in terms of technology and staffing. Um, and, you know, my guess is funding too uh, to make safety happen, you know. Yeah, and uh, she also mentioned some efforts in, in this direction towards solutions involving um, optimizing rest and recovery for pilots, hopefully for the air control officers as well. Um, and we did hear from Senator Jerry Morin as well and Senator Maria Cantwell. But um, the scale of this, when we think about it as well, is as Senator Morin pointed out, 1.5 million jobs is what the FAA accounts for. That's a lot of people, and that's a lot of underslept people who are taking care of a lot of other people who need to get places. And uh, when we think about the scale of this, um, that just adds to the urgency, I think. Right, and it's kind of like the hearing we were talking about the other day with um, 
You know, there were 400,000 employees in the Veterans, Veterans Affairs Department, and there's all kinds of whistleblowers raising alarms and, um, you know, retaliation against those whistleblowers. And, you know, I'm just imagining, you know, managing 400,000 employees, let alone 1.5 million employees. You know, Apple Computers has like 130,000 employees. Yeah. It's just a mammoth task to manage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we actually also heard from Senator Morin also supporting the FAA Reauthorization Act. So that's that's up for discussion right now. It's, it's being uh, assessed and he wants to see a long-term reauthorization. Uh, but at the moment, you know, he really pointed to the function of the FAA in addressing these issues and helping the U.S. to remain a leader in airspace aviation, which is such a, a note of pride for the U.S. and also even national security, I'd say. But Right. Yeah, that long-term author reauthorization of the FAA makes me think about all the different government shutdowns. Yeah. We've been, you know, hearing about and uh, you know, potential shutdowns, and, you know, one was 35 days in the past couple of years. Um, you know, if the FAA didn't have that long-term reauthorization and it shut down for, you know, even a few days, who knows what could happen on the nation's airways. Sure. All right. We're going to have more on the hearing after the break. Welcome back. We are tuned in to the Senate hearing on close calls in our nation's airways. It's hosted by the Subcommittee on Aviation Safety, Operations, Innovation, part of the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. Basically, this hearing is about when two airplanes get too close together in the air. We've seen um, instances where you know one plane is taking off um, while another plane is trying to land on the same runway, and they come within 100 feet of each other. Um, almost hitting, right? Yeah, it's crazy. There have been too many instances of this. A recent investigation by the New York Times found that in July alone, there were nearly 50 of these near collisions in the U.S. Wow, yeah, it's incredible. And I think we're going to hear from potential solutions in this hearing. Let's tune in. We will go ahead with witness testimonies. Uh, I would like to uh, go ahead and recognize uh, Ms. Jennifer Homedy, Chairwoman of the National Transportation Safety Board, for your comments. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, Chair Duckworth, and thank you, Senator Moran and Senator Cantwell, for leading on this issue and for having me here today. I want to start by emphasizing our incredible safety record. We have the safest airspace in the world, period. The critical efforts of everyone in this room have contributed to our reputation as the world's gold standard for aviation safety. We have a lot to be proud of, but we can make aviation safer. As you can see from this chart, there were 23 serious runway incursions in FY23, up from 16 in FY22 and 11 a decade ago. Runway incursions are also happening at a faster rate over the last decade. That's all runway incursions and the most serious. While these events are incredibly rare, our safety system is showing clear signs of strain that we cannot ignore. The NTSB has opened investigations into seven runway incursions this year alone. In over half, the aircraft got within several hundred feet of each other. 
We also opened an investigation into a runway collision between two business jets that occurred two weeks ago in Houston. Combined, these events put more than 1,300 lives at risk. That's on top of three wrong surface landings that we investigated. Thankfully, no one was hurt or seriously injured in any of these incidents, but they could have been. It only takes one. It only takes one missed warning to become a tragedy, one incorrect response to destroy public confidence in a system that has been built over decades. These incidents must serve as a wake-up call before something more catastrophic occurs. This isn't the first time we've seen this. We issued this same warning in 2007, and we issued the same warning after the 2017 incident at SFO, where an A320 came close to colliding with an A340 and three other airliners on a taxiway. The incident aircraft flew over the A340 at an altitude of 60 feet before it began climbing, which resulted in only 10 to 20 feet of vertical separation. All told, more than 1,000 people on the taxiway that day were at imminent risk of serious injury or death. I know you're gonna at, want to talk about our open investigations and get details on those. The NTSB is incredibly careful to gather all the facts and evidence around an incident before drawing conclusions or making safety recommendations. While I cannot discuss the details of our open investigations, I can share a few things, a few of what we're seeing. In the wake of the pandemic, we're experiencing a massive resurgence of air traffic. But we're also seeing significant ATC shortages, resulting in mandatory overtime, fatigue, distraction, and less opportunity for meaningful value-added training. On the flight deck, fatigue and distraction are leading to deviations from federal aviation regulations. Across the entire industry, we have a newer workforce who need training and mentorship. And we're seeing people that are struggling with significant mental health challenges. All of this is compounded by a lack of technology to ensure redundancy and protect against human error. Redundancy is the foundation of our stellar aviation safety record. It has served as the model for preventing accidents and crashes in all other modes of transportation. All that's to say, the current strain on our aviation system and its workforce cannot be underestimated. Before I close, I wanna thank all of you for being staunch supporters of the NTSB. But now I need your help. The NTSB needs the resources to carry out our vital safety mission. We received $145 million in the President's FY24 budget, which is included in the House mark. The Senate is at $134.3 million. We need the Senate to match that number of 145. Our agency's staffing and funding levels have remained somewhat stagnant since 1997. The small increases have gotten to well-deserved pay increases for our staff. But since I've become chair, we've accomplished a lot. We've eliminated our backlog entirely. We've boosted staffing, and we've made significant uh, investments in IT. Thank you for your continued support, and I'm happy to answer your questions. 
We are watching the Senate Aviation Subcommittee's hearing on addressing close calls to improve aviation safety. We heard from Jennifer Hammondy just there, the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, talking about the risks that she sees, the investigations that her organization has uh, been op opening this year. Seven, she said, just opened this year. Um, and the in resurgence of the need for more more aviation staff because of the uh, uptick in, in travel since the pandemic. Yeah, and she said that, you know, the United States has the safest airspace in the world, quote, period. And she pointed to the lower numbers that we have, you know, but she's saying, you know, these numbers are still too high because any one of these incidents of close calls between two airplanes can result in a disaster a national tragedy. Um, and so what are these close calls that we're talking about? Basically, when, when two airplanes get too close together, um, there's certain safety requirements, distances for them to get to, get, uh, to pass one another. Um, and when those, when, that, when, that, when those thresholds are crossed, it becomes very dangerous. Also, we hear these instances where, where one plane is trying to land on, the, on a runway where another plane is trying to take off and then um, somehow it didn't get communicated to the pilot for one reason or another. And in some instances, the pilot has to themselves redirect the airplane. Yeah, an instance like that happened just in January this year at Santa Barbara Municipal Airport. That's you know, obviously in California. Uh, but there was another one where the the plane crossed the wrong runway after the traffic air control uh, didn't notice the pilot's misunderstanding. So, so there's a lot of human error happening here. We did hear about, you know, the reasons fatigue, obviously distraction, Hamidi mentioned, less training that's valuable for these staff. Um, but she also talked about the newer workforce, that across the board the, there's a very new workforce, obviously replacing all of those people who, um, who left during the pandemic and retired and all of that. But something else she pointed to, which I found interesting, was the significant mental health challenges that, uh, that are being faced with, it, with these staff members. Right. I mean, just like everyone else, there was the pandemic, there's all the political strife, international strife, um, all kinds of world issues and local issues that have been adding up. It seems like just in the past, you know, five to ten years, and all of that is putting pressure on all kinds of people. Um, and in, in these traffic control towers, you know, you have, again, people working overtime, um, trying to do a job that requires intense focus. Yeah. I mean, you're, it, there's certain decisions you're making where people's lives are on the line, um, hundreds of people's lives. And if you get that decision wrong once, um, it's, it, it's, it's catastrophic. Yeah, that's right. Be. Yeah, yep. And there are just so many incidents this year, as we heard from, as I mentioned earlier, the New York Times report listing about 50 incidents in just one month. That was, you know, around the month of August of this year. But there were similar numbers in other months, around 46 in July, I believe. So um, what Hominy said was that these incidents are becoming more serious and more frequent over time. Um, so the, this is especially serious. And um, she hopes that it can be a wake-up call. I certainly think it is, and it looks like the Senate is addressing it that way, too. So let's... Uh, Let's tune into more after the break.
Thank you for staying with us. We're tuning in to the Senate hearing on close calls in our nation's airways. It's hosted by the subcommittee, the Senate Subcommittee on Aviation Safety Operations and Innovation, a of the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. It's about when planes get too close together. Uh, you know, one will be landing and another one is taking off, and um, you know, in some cases, getting in with 100 feet of one another. Um, putting people's lives at risk. So we're hoping to hear about potential solutions for this type of problem that has been getting more frequently in the past few years. Let's tune in. Thank you, Chairwoman Hamadi. I will now recognize Mr. Tim Morrell, Chief Operating Officer, FAA Air Traffic Organization. Thank you, Chair Duckworth. Thank you, Chair Cantwell and Ranking Member Moran. Thank you for the opportunity to um, testify along with my fellow professionals on an issue that has been referred to as close calls and near misses. I appreciate you holding this hearing for your continued oversight because transparency and a commitment to a continuous improvement are keys to improving aviation safety. You're familiar with the statistics. The U.S. aviation system, as Chair Hamadi said, is the safest in the world. There's not been a fatal crash involving a major U.S. airline since 2009 but in my 38 years of public service dedicated to aviation safety, I've come to understand that safety isn't a number or a static place. It is a journey of continuous improvement, eliminating risk before it becomes a statistic. Any significant event, whether isolated or indicative of a trend, is a concern and one we don't take lightly. One close call is one too many. Aviation safety is a team sport. Air traffic controllers, pilots, commercial operators, general aviation, and airports provide multiple layers of safety to protect the flying public. We have intentionally built in redundancies in our technologies and procedures where if one fails, the other one kicks in. Let me stress, the level of safety we currently have is only possible because of transparency and constant collaboration between the FAA and the users of the national airspace system. At the FAA, we're proact we are proud of our proactive safety culture, which means we value and encourage the sharing of data and safety information amongst the agency, industry, and labor to reduce risk, to learn from each other, and to collaboratively develop mitigations. The bottom line is that sharing and exchanging of safety information makes us safer and stronger. In fiscal year 2023, there were approximately 54.5 million takeoffs and landings in the U.S., and there were 1,756 total runway incursions. It's important to note, as the NTSB has highlighted, the number of most serious runway incursions, those where a collision was narrowly avoided or there was significant potential for a collision, what we call categories A's and B's, was a total of 23. And back to my point about transparency, all this information is available to the public. However, even though significant runway incursions were only 1.3% of the total number of operations, any number is unacceptable. And we are earnestly pursuing the elimination of all significant safety events in the system. Our goal is zero significant safety events. Transparent and collaborative reporting revealed an uptick in the most significant events early, and the FAA immediately responded through the administrator's call to action and other initiatives. A safety summit that was held in March of 2023 brought together more than 200 safety leaders from across the aviation industry, including labor representatives from NACA, ALPA, and PASS to discuss ways to enhance flight safety. NTSB Chair Hamandy spoke there as well, and that's where we committed to a goal of zero significant safety events. This is the same collaborative approach 
that was, that was used to virtually eliminate the risk of fatalities aboard U.S. commercial airlines. The FAA has held a number of surface safety summits with the individual users of our national airspace system, such as general aviation, air carriers, business aviation, and airport operators. We hear a lot about technology solutions, and those are certainly key. We are fast-tracking technologies to address specific safety concerns on the airport surface and are deploying a surface awareness technology at those locations that currently do not have a surface surveillance system. The trend overall is going down, but it's not enough. As I stressed at the beginning of my testimony, while we are proud of our safety culture and the progress we have made, we do not have the luxury of complacency. We are optimistic that our ongoing work in collaboration with industry and labor will continue to lead to greater safety improvements. The FAA will remain vigilant and continue collaborating with everyone that utilizes the national airspace system to enhance safety with a goal of eliminating significant safety events. Going forward, zero has to be the only acceptable number. Thank you again for the chance to speak on this critical issue, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Ms. Arrow. I now recognize Mr. Rich Santa, President, National Air Traffic Controller Association, for five minutes. Chair Duckworth, Ranking Member Moran, Chair Cantwell, thank you for this opportunity to testify today. The most important action Congress can take for the safety of the national airspace system would be to pass a long-term, comprehensive FAA reauthorization bill before the end of this year that directs the FAA to adopt the controller staffing target that has been developed by the Collaborative Resource Workgroup as the basis for the FAA's controller workforce plan and to maximize controller hiring for the duration of that bill. There are over 1,000 fewer controllers today than there were a decade ago. Continuing to follow the same flawed model that the FAA utilizes after more than a decade of missed hiring goals and missed staffing projections will continue this downward trend. A new approach is desperately needed. The FAA must adopt the updated and more accurate operational staffing targets that were jointly developed by the Collaborative Resource Workgroup. They were developed in, by a team comprised of the FAA's Air Traffic Organization and NACA, and FAA MITRE Corporation Center for Advanced Aviation System Development verified and validated that group's work. The facility staffing targets that the FAA utilizes today in our facilities were developed almost a decade ago. It's beyond time to update them. The new CRWG staffing targets need to be used as the basis for the FAA's annual controller workforce plan, moving forward so that Congress and aviation industry have a complete and most importantly accurate picture and view of the staffing needs of the NAS. We appreciate the Commerce Committee's inclusion of the CRWG staffing targets in its draft reauthorization bill. Under staffing, the FAA requires mandatory overtime to our controller workforce, including regular six-day work weeks and 10-hour days. This leads to fatigue. Last year's controller, controllers at 40% of our facilities worked six-day work weeks at least once a month, and several of our facilities require six-day work weeks and 10-hour days every single week. Air traffic control is already a highly stressful profession. Working 200 hours per month layers on significant fatigue and inserts additional risks into the NAS. In fact, in June, the DOT Inspector General issued an audit concluding that while the United States has one of the safest air traffic systems in the world, 
the lack of fully certified controllers poses a potential risk to air traffic operations. To reach the CRWG staffing targets, the FAA must hire to the maximum throughput of the FAA Academy for more than just the next five years. We are thankful for the bipartisan group of senators who have co-sponsored the important Air Traffic Controller Hiring Act of 2023, which we believe should be included in the base reauthorization bill. The FAA also needs to be transparent with its need for increased funding for its facilities and equipment budget, which provides resources for physical infrastructure repairs and sustainment, equipment modernization, and major capital projects. Congress has always met the agency's stated need, but the FAA has consistently requested less than it needs. It hasn't even adjusted for inflation. This has prevented the agency from meeting its equipment sustainment replacement and modernization needs, resulting in a significant backlog. Moving to a fix-on-fail model has led the, the FAA's inability to maintain and replace critical safety equipment that has exceeded ex its expected life and introduced unnecessary risk into the system. We are watching the Senate Aviation Subcommittee's hearing on addressing close calls to improve aviation safety, and that's chaired by Senator Tammy Duckworth. A Democrat from Illinois, we just heard from Rich Santa, president of the National Air Traffic Controller Association, and also Tim Arell, chief operating officer at Federal Aviation Administration Air Traffic Organization. One thing that Arell pointed to, what I found interesting was, he said that obviously air, air safety is a team sport, and he really pointed out all the parts of that, uh, that team, and saying, that they really do uh, account for and address various redundancies and procedures and tech in order to minimize the vulnerabilities. Uh, that does point to this idea of there are vulnerabilities at each level within that team or within all of the processes, all of the technologies. And this really speaks to an idea within aviation safety called the Swiss cheese model. There is. It's like there are plenty of layers of Swiss cheese and each of them has certain vulnerabilities such as pilot fatigue, the weather, things you can't control that just introduce uh, risks. But if you layer all these pieces of cheese together such that the, the holes are covered up, there are no holes. Um, but what we're seeing here as, is many of the holes shining through. Uh, we've got obviously the fatigue, this uh, lack of um, time off that many of the witnesses spoke to, but Rich Santa most recently, he's pushing for, for staffing uh, prioritizing staffing targets. Right. It is worth noting that Tim Morell started off saying, just as a previous witness said, that you know we have the safest airlines in the world. Um, you know we haven't had a fatal crash since 2009. Um, there's only been 23 serious incidents uh, of close calls um, out of 54 million launches in the past year. But you know he said flights in the past year, but. But he said, you know, our goal is zero significant safety threats. And, mm -hmm. you know, safety isn't just a status that you reach, a state that you reach, but it's something you always sort of strive toward and constantly raise the bar on. Yeah, I found it interesting that he had, that Arel had said that the trend of incidents is going down. Um, I don't know if I heard that right, because in, as far as I can tell, it's, uh, it's, there's been an uptick where we're in the middle of an uptick of um, incidents and serious incidents in recent years. But there's a point of contention there, possibly. He's saying we're op he's, he's saying he's optimistic 
they'll improve these numbers going forward. Okay. And, right, and then Rich Santa um, you know, said that the best action going forward is the long-term comprehensive reauthorization of the FAA, you know, in order to maximize hiring. He was saying that they're short a thousand air traffic controllers compared to a decade ago. And like all of our witnesses and the Congress people in this hearing have been saying, yeah, they're understaffed. You know, and these people, these air traffic controllers are under a lot of pressure to get decisions right because, you know, um, hundreds of people's lives are on the line in some instances. Yeah, and if we take this, you know, all this kind of lofty, uh, you know, discussion about things that happen in the air or just before they take off, um, may not be that easy to relate to. I don't know. I don't think about aviate air safety that often. Um, but, you know, unless they're flying. Unless, uh, not even when I'm flying. <laughs> I, tr I trust pretty, pretty well That's in good. that sense. But <laughs> I haven't had any reason not to personally. But there are many incidents, you know, recently and nearby many of us around this country. Um, things like uh, at the Baltimore Washington International Airport back in January. That's in Maryland. Um, a plane just crossed the runway after air traffic control didn't notice that a pilot had a misunderstanding. So these kinds of things, you know, human errors, we face them every day, but when it's on a scale like that, it's really can be quite shocking. A lot of these, as we heard earlier, didn't lead to fatal fatalities, but they could have. Easily, and you know, all it takes is that one time, that one mistake, and it's a national tragedy. Yeah. You know, earlier in the hearing, for those of you who, who joined us um, after it began, um, Senator uh, Tammy Duckworth, the chair for this committee, was saying that she, she showed this video, this sort of uh, re reenactment of a close call that happened where they had this runway and one plane is preparing to take off and another plane is landing on that same runway in that same direction. And you see this plane come down and then pivot like really rapidly, abruptly. And they came within 100 feet of one another. To give you, our audience, a sense of what that actually looks like and how dangerous it really is, it, it was within probably milliseconds. Quite shocking, actually. Um, and when you think about the, the people on, on board who are having to face these kinds of things, even if they don't uh, you know, literally lose their lives, it must be fairly terrifying and, and certainly is avoidable or it should be avoidable. Um, considering the issues, obviously, the, all of society is trying to adjust post-pandemic, and this is just one facet of that. But it certainly is worth a look, and this is something that the Senate has been um, determined to, to really dig into. So it's you know, worth it that we've covered this as well today because it is such a huge issue. Um, that wraps up our coverage of this Senate hearing, but you can, as Chris mentioned earlier, you can actually watch the whole Senate hearing online. Uh, stay tuned, though, because we'll be back with more news after the break. The Senate considering subpoenas to influential conservatives with ties to Supreme Court justices. A hearing is underway over the ethics probe. Republican presidential hopefuls face off in Miami last night in the third primary debate of the 2024 election cycle. How are New Yorkers reacting? 
We took to the streets to find out. The Senate rejects President Biden's proposed waiver for EV charging stations. The White House says the president will veto the bill if it hits his desk. And federal authorities bust a high-end brothel networking spanning several states. Clients included society's elites such as politicians and military officers. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warns of growing and dangerous military ties between North Korea and Russia. What's his message to China? The holiday shopping season is in full swing. What's the best time to shop for sales? Experts give advice. Israel has agreed to a four-hour daily ceasefire starting today. It will announce the window every day at least three hours in advance. This follows President Biden's call with Israel's Prime Minister on Monday in which he asked Benjamin Netanyahu for humanitarian pauses. That's amid growing concerns about the living situation in Gaza. Biden also told reporters today that he had asked Netanyahu to pause longer than three days during hostage talks, but he ruled out chances of a full ceasefire. Here's the president. Did you ask for a three-day pause to Netanyahu? You know, I've been asked for a pause for a lot more than three days. <laughs> yes. Did you ask him to pause for three days to get the hostage out? Yes. I've asked for even a longer pause for some of them. Senate Democrats are considering subpoenas in the ethics probe into the Supreme Court. The Senate Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing over the issue. Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow are central players in the ethics challenge facing the court. Their baseless refusal to respond to the committee's valid inquiries prevent us from understanding the full scope of this issue. As chair of this committee, I cannot allow them to thwart congressional authority. For these reasons, I've asked the committee to authorize subpoenas with respect to Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow. The committee is considering subpoenas for a pair of influential conservatives with ties to Supreme Court justices. Billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow is a friend of Justice Clarence Thomas and funded his luxury trips. Conservative legal activist Leonard Leo was instrumental in compiling former President Trump's list of potential Supreme Court nominees. Senator Dick Durbin, the committee's Democratic chairman, said subpoenas were necessary in light of Crow and Leo's refusal to voluntarily comply with previous requests for information. Democrats are expected to face resistance from the panel's re Republican members. They have regarded the ethics probe as an attempt to tarnish the re reputation of the Supreme Court. Five Republican presidential hopefuls duped it out at the third GOP 2024 debate in Miami last night. Candidates made their case to GOP voters on why they should be the nominated instead of former President Trump. The debate in Florida took aim at foreign policy and other pressing topics hot on people's minds. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy came out swinging at RNC Chair Rona McDaniel and NBC, the hosts of the debate. The GOP firebrand called for accountability from the network for past reporting and said if the debate was hosted by Elon Musk, Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson, it would get 10 times the viewership. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley got into a bit of a scrum with him over TikTok and China. And at one point, the crowd started chanting Trump, and the producer nicely asked them to stop. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more takeaways on what the five candidates had to say. Okay, 
2024 presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called out former President Trump in his appeal for the GOP nomination. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. He should explain why he didn't have Mexico pay for the border wall. He should explain why he racked up so much debt. He should explain why he didn't drain the swamp. And he said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, I'm sick of Republicans losing. Frustration shared by 2024 hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy, taking aim at the RNC chair for a losing track record since 2018, and NBC the host of the debate. You think the Democrats, and we've got Christian Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? They wouldn't do it. And so the fact of the matter is, I mean, Christian, I'm going to use this time because this is actually about you in the media and the corrupt media establishment. Ask you the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that you pushed on this network for years. Was that real or was that Hillary Clinton made up disinformation? Answer the question. Go. Mr. Ross. This is how we get our country back. Candidates were asked how, as president, they would respond to the Israel-Hamas war. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. 2024 contender Chris Christie says as president, he would prioritize intelligence to avoid further terrorist attacks. Israel and their intelligence community failed. They failed here and they failed the people of the state of Israel. And so we need to work closely and better together. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says the issue needs to be addressed at its root. The former ambassador to the UN says terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah are only a threat because of Iran and its allies. And who is funding Iran right now? China is buying oil from Iran. Russia is getting drones and missiles from Iran. And there is an unholy alliance. We need to be clear-eyed. The last thing we need to do is to tell Israel what to do. The only thing we should be doing is supporting them and eliminating Hamas. An assessment supported by Senator Tim Scott. If you want to stop the 40-plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. If you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake. DeSantis and Haley at one point sparred over how to best deal with the Chinese regime and other foreign threats to the U.S. We will go and end all formal trade relations with China until they stop murdering Americans from fentanyl, something Ron has yet to say that he's going to do. And then we modernize our military. When we strengthen our military, when we modernize it with the focus of cyber, artificial intelligence, and space, when we make sure that we have the backs of our friends, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Ukraine, and we should be arming Taiwan. In Florida? I banned China from buying land in this state, and we kicked out on our universities, and we kicked the Confucius Institutes out of our universities. We've recognized the threat, and we've acted swiftly and decisively. Haley and Ramaswamy continued their grudge match over TikTok and China. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. The easy answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. The fourth GOP primary debate is set for December 6th in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former President Trump countering last night's GOP debate with a rally on his own. Trump was in Halea, Florida last, saying the Republican Party is wasting time by focusing on other candidates. 
Here are some clips from his speech. And it's time for the Republican establishment to stop wasting time and resources trying to push weak and ineffective rhinos and never-Trumpers that nobody wants and nobody's going to vote for. The radical left Democrat communists are against voter ID, therefore open borders. How about that? Open borders where criminals come in from all over the world. 2024 is our final battle. Stand with me in the fight. We will finish the job that we started so brilliantly seven years ago. And a surprising endorsement for Trump, the co-founder of a Black Lives Matter chapter in Rhode Island supports the former president. Mark Fisher says Trump is the best candidate among many running for president. The BLM activist says he's not the only one feeling this way in the Black Lives Matter movement. Also, our Republican megadonor is switching sides. Hotel entrepreneur Robert Bigelow is now supporting Trump over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He says he'll donate to the Trump campaign. However, only if Trump is not going to prison. This comes amid numerous legal battles the former president is facing. One of those legal battles is the federal election case in D.C. Trump is now challenging a gag order the judge issued against him in the case. The former president says the gag order violates his right to free speech. His lawyers submitted an almost 70-page filing challenging the order. And following the third Republican presidential primary debate, as we just mentioned, how are voters responding? We asked people in New York to find out. Who do you think won the debate last night? Well, I didn't watch the entire thing and I didn't watch the closing remarks because they're really painful. Um, but Nikki Haley does pretty well in these debates. I'm not a supporter of any of those candidates specifically, um, but I think she articulates herself well, is very clear. So I guess I would go with Nikki Haley. What are the um, key issues for you this election? Um, the key issues for me um, are around health care and providing greater access to health care. I'm biased. I'm a public health professional, so that's where my thoughts go. Um, the economy is obviously important. I know there's a lot of discussion about immigration, but I don't agree with most of what was anything what was said uh, regarding immigration last night. Um, but I do think that greater supports in that regard are needed. And what are the key issues that are important to you this election? Well. Obviously, foreign affairs, uh, what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on with Ukraine, keeping Russia in its place, keeping China in its place, not to mention crime, um, fentanyl. The Chinese are sending over all this fentanyl, and we don't do a thing about it. Mil hundreds of thousands of people are streaming across our borders in the south, and it's as if the border doesn't exist. Biden just alligated hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars towards the border, but not for shutting it, not for policing it, but for processing those people, criminal, illegal aliens who are sneaking in. So I got a problem with Biden, and I voted for him. So who do you think lost the debate? Ramaswamy. And why is that? He was obnoxious. And he's too young. He's 38 years old. He's less than half of Biden's age. He's less than half of Trump's age. Not experienced enough. Come back in 10, 12 years and try it again, if I was Ramaswamy. What are your key issues this, this, that are important to you this election? 
interest rates, <laughs> trying to buy a house. That's a big, uh, a big issue for me um, here in New York State bail reform. Really not happy about it. Um, so I'm hoping that you know we have a change in administration that really starts to fix things for us. Who do you think won the debate? DeSantis. Oh, and, and why is that? I think just overall, I mean, he makes the most common sense. I'm a kind of the middle of the road kind of person. I just really like what he stands for, and I'm with him 100%. Based on what you watched, who do you think won the debate last night? It's a good question. I, I'm honestly not too sure. I, like I said, I watched part of it, not all of it, but. In my opinion, I think the biggest person who's the winner of these whole debates wasn't even on the stage, actually. That's actually just my opinion, though. Do you think that he should have been there? Personally, I think it's healthy to have all the people who are running for a president debate, but I understand practically why. If he's so far ahead, it might do him more harm than good than opening his mouth and risking his annoying people, so that's just my opinion. I don't like it, but I understand what his thinking behind it is. A significant difference between last night's GOP debate and the previous two. That's according to congressional correspondent for the Epic Times, Mark Tapscott. I got his perspective on the third Republican debate. Mark Tapscott, thank you for joining us. Last night in the GOP debate, Vivek Ramaswamy clashed with Ambassador Nikki Haley. He brought up her daughter's use of the app TikTok, and Haley called him scum. How do you think these moments reflect on these two candidates? Not well on either one of them. Um, Ramaswamy came out swinging from his very first comments. He challenged uh, the RNC chairman, Roma McDaniel, to resigned because she had um, done this debate with NBC. And of course, Ramaswamy and a lot of other Republicans don't trust uh, NBC or the other mainstream media. Um, I, I think it really reflected poorly on Ramaswamy and on Nikki Haley. Um, Nikki Haley would have done much better to have simply um, responded with some kind of grace rather than calling him scum. Uh, we, we may well look back on this particular debate as the scum debate, uh, which is not going to help either one of them. The scum debate. Now, Haley, Chris Christie, and Ron DeSantis all criticized Donald Trump when asked why voters should choose them over him. While Ramaswamy and Tim Scott deflected the question, what explains the difference in these two types of responses? I, I was puzzled by that myself. I thought DeSantis did... Frankly, I think DeSantis did consistently the strongest throughout the debate. Uh, Haley, absent the scum remark, probably would have been right there with him, at least in, in my humble opinion. Um, the reason I think that mainly is because right off the bat, DeSantis uh, basically said, I'm the guy who has already done it in Florida. I'm going to be able to do it on a national level, and without all of the chaos and confusion that uh, would accompany another Trump administration. That's probably the most effective argument that DeSantis can make. Um, hasn't hasn't really struck the nerve yet that he needs for it to. Um, we might see a change in that in in Iowa uh, in January. Um, the others, they they simply uh, um, for whatever reason, you know, they have consistently avoided Ramaswamy and Scott. Um, engaging in a verbal war with Trump, probably because they both realized that would 
be a waste of time on their part. And Mark, compare and contrast for us last night's debate with the other two GOP debates so far. Oh, I, I was surprised. I have to. I have to admit, I was very surprised. Other than Lester Holtz badgering the audience at the outset, uh, I thought he and and Kirsten Weller and my old friend Hugh Hewitt um, did a very good job of keeping things focused and keeping the debate moving along. They sort of lost control a bit there with the Ramaswamy and, and Haley uh, fireworks, but basically it was it was a very organized debate, and it gave the candidates opportunities to lay out what their views are in a very specific and, and straightforward way. In the previous debates, the Fox debates, they were much less uh, organized. You had much more in the way of talking over uh, the other guys, and frankly, I think that... Uh, you know, it's kind of fun to watch sometimes, but it doesn't really communicate uh, what a candidate would be if he was he or she uh, was elected. So I, I think last night was probably the best of the three so far. All right. Congressional correspondent for the Epic Times, Mark Tapscott. Thank you very much. Chris, thank you. When we come back, nearly 5.5 million federal student loan borrowers enrolled in Biden's SAVE program. Hear more about what the administration calls the most generous repayment option ever offered. Communities ravaged by the opioid epidemic are looking forward. Their share of $50 billion in legal settlements will be used to address the crisis. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Senate just rejected President Biden's proposed EV charging waiver. Biden was pushing to relax some Buy America requirements for government-funded electric vehicle charging stations. The White House says the president will veto the measure. The administration argues the Republican bill would eliminate the domestic manufacturing requirement entirely. Three Senate Democrats and independent Kirsten Sinema joined Republicans in voting to reject the regulation. The Federal Highway Administration in February agreed to waive some requirements until July 2024. Congress set aside $7.5 billion to fund electric vehicle charging stations. The funding is crucial to the Biden administration's plans to ramp up electric vehicle sales. Under the 2021 infrastructure law, projects like EV chargers must obtain at least 55% of construction materials from domestic sources. President Biden visiting Illinois today. That's to meet with Sean Fain, head of the United Auto Workers Union. This comes after tentative contract agreements between the United the Union and automakers ended a nearly 45-day strike. The Bi Biden is expected to highlight the recent contract agreements between the Union and Detroit's big three automakers. He'll deliver remarks praising gains for workers, talk about Bidenomics, and plans to reopen an auto factory that Stellantis wanted to close. He'll also meet with Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker with union members and attend a fundraiser. Biden often touts himself as the most pro-union president. However, the UAW hasn't endorsed Biden yet, primarily due to his push for electric vehicles. A high-end brothel network catering to society's elites busted. 
The Justice Department yesterday announced they arrested three people for organizing the network across multiple states. The clients allegedly included politicians and military officers. The buyers who made up this ring hail from an array of professions. They are doctors, they are lawyers, they are accountants, they are elected officials, they are executives at high-tech companies and pharmaceutical companies. They're military officers, government contractors, professors, scientists. According to federal prosecutors, the network has been in operation since 2020. It involved brothels in Cambridge and Watertown, Massachusetts, as well as Fairfax and Tyson's, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. Three alleged organizers, Han Lee, James Lee, and Jun Myung Lee, are facing charges of working together to coerce illegal sexual activity. The affidavit alleges that clients had to first submit their personal information online before being contacted through text messages. Rates ranged between $350 and $600 an hour. Federal authorities say they believe the network involved potentially hundreds of clients. None of them are charged. The investigation is ongoing and still in its early stages. Nearly 5.5 million federal student loan borrowers have enrolled in what the Biden administration calls the most generous repayment option ever offered. The repayment plan is dubbed the Saving on Valuable Education, or SAVE plan. The program went into effect in August as part of President Biden's effort to forgive student loan debt. According to the Department of Education, about 3 million current enrollees won't have to pay anything each month. Overall, borrowers are repaying $300 billion in federal student loans on the plan. That represents about 20% of the $1.6 trillion in outstanding student debt. The SAFE plan is expected to cost billions in taxpayer dollars. One analysis by Penn's Wharton Business School suggests that the plan will cost about $475 billion over 10 years. Detroit police have made an arrest in the stabbing death of synagogue president Samantha Wall. Wall was found dead outside of her Michigan home last month. Authorities don't believe the crime was motivated by anti-Semitism and are treating it as a domestic dispute. Detroit, Detroit police haven't identified the suspect and said details of the investigation will remain confidential at this time. The New York City Police Department published crime statistics for October. It reported a more than 210% increase in hate crimes against Jews. The total number of bias incidents investigated by the NYPD Hate Crime Task Force increased by 124%. Cities around the country are, are dealing with anti-Semitic violence in the wake of the October 7th Hamas terror attacks on Israel. Overall, crime was down again in October. The NYPD says New York City saw a drop in murders, burglaries, grand larcenies, and shootings. But year-to-date, overall hate crime investigations continued to fall with a decrease of 9%. A Colorado funeral homeowner and his wife have been arrested. The decaying remains of at least 189 people were recently found at their establishment. I want to warn you, the information contained in that affidavit is absolutely shocking. All persons arrested and charged with crimes are presumed innocent, as I said earlier, until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And none of the facts contained in that probable cause affidavit should lead people to a different conclusion. Today we have positively identified 110 individuals. 
We have another 80 individuals that we are working on diligently to identify. John and Carrie Halford were arrested in Wagoner, Oklahoma. They're suspected of four felonies, abuse of a corpse, theft, money, money laundering, and forgery. The Halfords are the owners of Return to Nature Funeral Home in Penrose, a town about 100 miles south of Denver. Authorities discovered the bodies at the building on October 4th. Neighbors had noticed an unpleasant smell for days. A fatal collision in Texas. Eight people died after police chased a suspected human smuggler. According to the Texas Department of Public Safety, the driver from Houston crashed head-on into an SUV, causing the SUV to burst into flames. The driver and passenger in the SUV died as well as the driver and passengers in the car. The investigation remains ongoing. It's been three months since the deadly Lahaina fire ripped through Maui. Governor Josh Green announced a new recovery fund exceeding $150 million. The money will go to people who were injured and the families of people who died. Beneficiaries who voluntarily opt into the program will receive more than $1 million next year. Governor Green says the next steps in the recovery process is submitting a comprehensive legislative package. It would protect residents from increases in their energy and insurance bills and improve the electric grid. An Italian police and the FBI detained 17 people suspected of ties to organized crime in Sicily and the U.S. Police executed the simultaneous transatlantic operation Wednesday. Authorities say the investigation looked into links between New York's Gambino crime family and Sicily's Cosa Nostra. Seven suspects were detained around Pal Palermo and another 10 in New York. The allegations include extortion, arson, and bid rigging. The arrests in the U.S. were linked to extortion activities around construction sites in New York City. According to investigators, the Sicilians were teaching their U.S. contracts their extortion method. The Sicilian tactics demand smaller sums in using less violent methods. Authorities say Cosa Nostra believes a lighter touch helps build the loyalty of the extorted. The FBI is moving its headquarters, which have been described as dilapidated, from Washington, D.C. to Greenbelt, Maryland. The move ends a years-long search for the federal law enforcement agency's new main offices. The crumbling J. Edgar Hoover building in downtown Washington has been its headquarters since 1975. Authorities say the new location in Greenbelt was chosen for its low cost to taxpayers and provides the best commute for FBI employees and visitors. Members of Maryland's federal, state, and local governments praised the move. Virginia's senators criticized the decision. A solemn wreath-laying ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery yesterday marked one of the darkest days in American history. It was, over six, it was 60 years ago, on November 22, 1963. John F. Kennedy was assassinated during a motorcade in Dallas, Texas. Yesterday, senior U.S. Army officials and members of Congress showed up to pay tribute to the 35th president. President Kennedy made a visit to Arlington in 1963 for Veteran Day services, himself a World War II vet veteran. That was just 11 days before his death. A bit of hope for communities ravaged by the opioid epidemic. They're starting to get their share of $50 billion in legal settlements. But most of that money has to be used to address the crisis. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest on the effort to reduce overdoses 
and save lives. Finley, Ohio is no stranger to the opioid epidemic. From 1999 through 2020, the county's opioid-linked death rate mirrored the nation's. But Finley forged a path that many places did not. Corey Kinn spends his nights as the live-in coordinator at this men's recovery house. During the day, he works with clients involved in the criminal justice system. Our main goal was to bridge the gap after treatment, because after they get out of jail or prison and they start treatment, and then when everything's said and done, then what do you do? Prospective residents have to be in recovery for 30 days before moving in. Rules include doing jobs around the house, attending mandatory meetings, and drug testing. The guys will get up, they'll get their coffee, get ready for work, you know, I'll have conversations with them, see if they need anything, you know, just kind of see where they're at. There's evidence that the recovery homes are helping. Down the road in Hancock County, 28 people died from overdoses from opioids and other drugs last year. So far, 2023 has seen just three confirmed overdose deaths and five suspected ones. You plant a seed, but you may never see the tree grow. Just knowing that I helped plant that seed and it's a possibility that it will grow is enough for me. Now his workplace and other communities will get their share of $50 billion worth of legal settlements. It isn't enough to defeat the opioid epidemic, but it's a start. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Up next, are London's police biased in favor of Palestine? Britain's prime minister isn't too happy with how they are holding, with, with how they're handling protests, saying police are responsible if anything bad happens. And a win for tech companies in Europe. The continent's highest court decides with Google, TikTok, and others in a court battle. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. And next, let's head to some international news headlines. French President Emmanuel Macron now calling for a humanitarian pause in the Israel-Hamas war. This as leaders from 50 nations are visiting Paris today. Today, the situation is grave and it's getting worse each day. In the short term, we should work on protecting civilians. And to do so, we need a humanitarian pause very quickly. And we have to strive for a ceasefire. This should become a possibility. Macron also announced increased aid for Palestine. That's from over $20 million to more than $100 million in 2023. This as officials from Western and Arab nations are gathering in Paris for a conference. They're discussing how to provide aid to civilians in the Gaza Strip. Topics include proposals for a humanitarian maritime corridor and floating field hospitals. France wants today's conference to address needs for food, water, health supplies, electricity and fuel. A military, a military medical ship is sailing from Italy to Gaza to help treat victims of the conflict. Italy's defense minister said the ship has 170 staff on board, including 30 people trained for medical emergencies. The minister said the ship will first head to Cyprus and then close to the conflict zone to provide medical support. A Spanish politician was taken to a hospital in Madrid after being shot on a street in the capital. Police said he was shot in the face around 1.30 p.m. local time and was conscious when taken to the hospital. He's a member of Spain's conservative popular party. He also founded 
far-right party Vox, the third largest force in the lower house of Spanish parliament. An investigation is underway into the shooting. No arrests have been made. Over in the UK, the British government accuses London's police of holding a pro-Palestine bias. This after police said it'll allow a pro-Palestinian demonstration to go ahead. The protest is scheduled for Saturday's Armistice Day, which is the British equivalent of Veterans Day. This is a decision that the Metropolitan Police Commissioner has made and he has said that he can ensure that he safeguards remembrance uh, for the country this weekend as well as keep the public safe. Now, my job is to hold him accountable for that. The Prime Minister says police are responsible for any possible trouble and he described the march as disrespectful. However, police say there isn't reason enough to ban the protest. The force says they expect a significant demonstration on Saturday. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin today visiting his neighboring country, Kazakhstan. This marks Putin's third known trip abroad since international arrest warrants were issued. The Hague-based International Criminal Court issued the warrant in March. Kazakhstan is not a signatory to the court. The court accuses Putin of illegally deporting children from Ukraine. It obliges the court's over 100 member states to arrest Putin and transfer him to The Hague for trial. Putin and Kazakhstan's president praised their strong relations during today's visit. Austria and Germany are marking the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht today. On the night of the November 9, 1938, Nazis killed at least 91 people and vandalized over 7,000 Jewish businesses. They also burned over 1,000 synagogues and arrested 30,000 Jewish men. Today, Austria's president and chancellor paid tribute, laying wreaths at the Scholl Memorial in Vienna. Germany's chancellor, meanwhile, used the day to condemn anti-Semitism. He says he's ashamed and outraged at a recent wave of anti-Semitic incidents in Germany. In the week following the, the Hamas attacks, Germany saw an increase in anti-Semitic incidents of over 200 percent. That's compared to a year prior. He spoke at a ceremony at a Berlin synagogue alongside Jewish leaders. The synagogue was among those that were damaged or destroyed during the Night of Broken Glass in 1938. Staying in Austria, but over to tech news. Google, Meta, and TikTok won a court case challenging an Austrian law. The 2021 law would have required them to delete hate speech or face fines of over $10 million. However, Europe's top court sided with the tech companies in their challenge. This comes after the European Union recently adopted new rules for online platforms. The Digital Services Act requires large online platforms to do more to tackle illegal and harmful online content, or they risk fines up to 6% of their annual turnover. Now, the latest from Asia, where two top U.S. officials are visiting for high-stakes talks. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. is deeply concerned over military ties between Russia and North Korea. He made the remarks during a visit to South Korea. Blinken and the South Korean foreign minister said they were considering a so-called extended deterrence strategy to counter threats from Pyongyang. The leaders also discussed further strategic cooperation with Japan. Blinken urged China to play a role in curbing risky transactions between Moscow and Pyongyang. China has um, a unique relationship with North Korea. As a result of that relationship, it has real influence. And we do look to China to use that influence to play a constructive role 
in pulling North Korea back from this irresponsible uh, and dangerous behavior. The U.S., South Korea and Japan have condemned alleged arms shipment from North Korea to Russia. They pointed to cargo shipments from the reclusive state to Russia as evidence. Should the U.S. continue to collaborate on scientific research with China? A group of Republicans in Congress is calling on President Biden not to renew a scientific agreement with the country. The lawmakers are Congress members Daryl Issa, Mike Gallagher, and Andy Barr, and Senator Pete Ricketts. They say the U.S.-China Science and Technology Cooperation Agreement, or STA, has overwhelmingly benefited China. In a letter to the White House obtained by the New York Post, the lawmakers wrote, we are gravely concerned that the STA is furthering the Chinese Communist Party's ambitions to supplant the United States as the world's leading innovation powerhouse. The deal first came into being in 1979 under President Jimmy Carter. The U.S. and China have collaborated in research in fields from physics to earth sciences to industrial technology since then. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has arrived in New Delhi, India today. He and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will be meeting with their Indian counterparts later this week. Officials say the talks will focus on security challenges in the Indo-Pacific and concerns over China rather than the wars in Israel and Ukraine. The meeting is part of what's called the 2 plus 2 dialogue launched in 2018 to boost defense cooperation and align policy objectives in the Indo-Pacific region. The two countries are working on deals for the U.S. to supply and manufacture engines for Indian fighter jets, MQ-9 Predator drones, and semiconductor manufacturing. Staying in India's capital, where seasonal smog has gripped the city for a whole week. For the first time, New Delhi plans to improve air quality through artificial rainfall. It's proposed to seed clouds beginning no November 20th to induce precipitation. The plan is still pending legal approvals and weather conditions. Delhi's air quality index was put at 496 today. A figure between 300 and 500 is considered hazardous. The city is currently ranked the world's most polluted capital. New Delhi has closed schools, restricted vehicle use, and halted construction activities. Air quality in the city worsens every winter as cold air traps pollutants from various sources. Taiwan and the UK are developing deeper economic ties. They signed an enhanced trade partnership yesterday after a high-level meeting in London. Taiwanese officials said the agreement would serve as a model for other European countries to improve their trade ties with Taiwan. The trade deal Taiwan hopes to further boost its case to join a major pan-Pacific free trade pact and bolster its ties with other European states. Despite being a member of the World Trade Organization, Taiwan has few formal trade agreements with other countries due to pressure from the Chinese regime. The Chinese regime reacted to the latest trade deal, telling the UK to stop its efforts to enhance ties with Taiwan. And the largest floating solar power plant in Southeast Asia just opened in Indonesia. It's also the third largest floating, sour plant, floating solar power plant in the world. The facility is located over 60 miles southeast of Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia. At a cost of more than $100 million, the project is part of a drive to increase renewable energy sources.
Last year, renewable energy accounted for more than 12% of Indonesia's energy mix. The country is aiming for 23% by 2025, a goal the president says would be hard to achieve. The holiday shopping season is in full swing and the National Retail Federation expects shoppers to spend more this year than last year despite high inflation. As for the best time to shop for deals, let's hear more from experts. Tis the season of spending and despite concerns over the economy, the National Retail Federation says consumers are ready to spend big. NRF is forecasting that total holiday sales during the months of November and December could reach as high as $967 billion. The holiday shopping season keeps creeping earlier and earlier. This year, it's for a very practical reason. They want more time to find deals and they want more time to really spread out that shopping. With inflation holding steady, NRF Vice President Catherine Cullen says holiday shoppers are more price conscious. Shoppers are saying they will pull back in other areas in order to afford and prioritize their holiday shopping season. They will search for sales and deals and really look for ways to make every dollar count. And where are they putting those dollars? Gift cards were the top item that people said that they were shopping for this year rather than specific products. Another big trend this season, beauty and self-care products, thanks in part to influencer culture. Shoppers are finding influencers and social media to be increasingly important when it comes to hearing about deals, but also discovering new products and things that they didn't know they needed. As far as deals goes, Kristen McGrath with Retail Me Not says Black Friday shopping is still the best bang for your buck. We tend to find the most deals and the best deals all concentrated around that one big weekend. Neiman Marcus is out with a new list of extravagant gifts for super wealthy holiday gift givers. Only one of each gift is available, and each of them costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. The luxury retailer has been producing its Christmas book of unique and pricey presents for more than six decades. This year's edition includes a one-of-a-kind Cadillac, a red carpet experience in Cannes, and a walk-on role at an American ballet theater performance. There's also the chance to star in a Disney animated short with the gift recipient voicing a character based on them. That gift, which includes a ticket to a Disney Hollywood premiere, costs $510,000. For $210,000, you can get your loved one access to hang out with Team USA at the 2024 Summer Olympics in Paris. There's also a four-day trip to Milan with interior designer Nina McGone. For $380,000, it includes dinners at Michelin star restaurants, private museum and furniture factory tours, and a $100,000 voucher for Italian-made furniture. Do you have what it takes to be James Bond? A new TV adventure series challenges contestants to travel the world, tackling challenges inspired by the secret agent. Those who have what it takes will win a grand prize of over $1 million. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on Bond. James Bond. Here we go again, brother. 007 Road to a Million features nine pairs of participants competing to answer ten questions hidden around the world. 
Renowned Scottish actor Brian Cox plays the role of the controller. It's me. Contestants face daunting stunts to get to the briefcase carrying their questions. So my sister sent me an advert on Facebook that just said seeking uh, thrill-seeking couples for a global challenge and I thought, I can do that, that appeals to me, I've done a lot of travel and adventurous things in my life, but my sister said she sent it to me as a joke, but I applied. The production was shrouded in secrecy. Contestants were given few details about their destinations. As the filming progressed, it gradually became clear that the series was all about James Bond. It just snowballed into this, like, actually, we started getting to locations and, and things started yeah. triggering in your head that you're like, that's a bit, I've seen that before somewhere, you yeah. know, that, and then there would be a car or, a, you know, a, a, another bit of machinery or something like that. Participants also had to keep a lid on the series. Only their immediate family could know. You know, I felt sorry for my wife because she had to deal with the phone calls and all that and people asking where I was. Like James mentioned, like, the school run, I think they thought we were getting divorced, you know, because like she, she couldn't say, where's Joe? I can't tell you. And it was like, Came back, with a, came back with a suntan in December. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the contestants said shooting the series had given them a newfound appreciation of the Bond actors and stunt teams. Some felt like they became a part of the franchise. <laughs> it is life-changing. It's definitely been a life-changing experience, and I don't think it's fully sunk in yet. I don't think it will do until it's actually released and people get to watch it. Yeah. And I see it and think, well, that's me. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I still haven't realised. Yeah. 007 Road to a Million launches globally on Prime Video November 10th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. world has a new, albeit small, island in the Pacific Ocean. According to Japan's meteorological agency, the unnamed plot of land was created by an underwater volcano blast on October 30th. Officials took photographic evidence of the eruption and creation of the island. The island is located about 750 miles south of Japan's mainland and near Iwo Jima, the site of some of the World War II's most fierce battles. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.